0: Hi, I'm Peter Coyle, director of the Montclair Public Library. We're so glad you're joining us for this month's episode of Check Us Out, the Montclair Public Library podcast. In today's episode, Molly and Maurice are going to share some highlights of our programs this month and some resources surrounding African American History Month. They have some great resources for student projects and are excited to talk about some of our events. Then, Ken and Kirsten will be talking about new books that have been published this month and some of their favorites. I think you'll find that very interesting. And finally, Selva will be talking with award-winning author Dion Ford, author of the anthology Shared Legacies, Narratives of Race and Reconciliation by Descendants of Enslavers and the Enslaved, and the forthcoming memoir, Finding Josephine. Hello, this
1: is Maurice from the Adult School Department.
2: And this is Molly from the Adult Services Department. We're gonna tell you today about some upcoming programs in February for our celebration of African-American history. We're just gonna tell you some highlights, but there is a ton of stuff going on, something pretty much almost every day and for lots of different age groups going to just highlight some events for adults and kind of general audience, but there will also be programs specifically for children and families. For, so for a full listing of the events, you can go to monglerlibrary.org slash African American History 2020. And I'll put that link in the um, description for, for the podcast when we upload it. Or if you're listening, it's already been uploaded.
1: We have a lot of Great things coming uh, for the month of February. You know, we definitely want to honor the contributions of African Americans, particularly in as it relates to this area, this region, Montclair area, larger region as well. And on that note, we're proud to welcome artist Willie Cole back to Montclair since his since his one man show at the Montclair Art Museum several years ago. He'll be here on Monday, February twenty fourth, at seven p.m. for Willie Cole and conversation: Art and Life Inspired by Newark. Willie will be in conversation with Nettie Fournet thomas an artist and educator who's worked in the Newark School District for more than 30 years. She's a friend of Willie and she's also very established here in Montclair. She's been on the Board of Trustees at the Art galleries at Montclair State University their art gallery she's also been a part of pen and brush which is a major art organization based out of new york that focuses on female artists both of them have been very kind enough to come to montclair they'll be here again on the 24th in our auditorium this is a free event so all are welcome so um and and also i should add on top of that woolly cole has been generous enough to offer some artwork here for display and for purchase that includes some 3d models of some of his sculptures as well as books and posters those they'll be on display here in the lobby of the Montclair Art Museum, um, so they'll, they'll be at also the be
2: in
1: a library. You said art museum. <laughs> that's all good. but it'll
2: be
1: like an art museum. Yeah. <laughs> it'll it'll be like an art museum in February. It'll be temporarily <laughs> an art museum, but yeah, you can actually buy the stuff to take home, So oh, that's no, even better, cool. so that'd be very nice. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're very excited about that. We also have another uh, free event that we're excited about. This one is about T. Thomas Fortune, the most famous person you never heard of. That is on Friday, February 28th at 10.30 a.m., also at the auditorium here at the Montclair Library. T. Thomas Fortune was a very key journalist, newspaper publisher, also leading early civil rights activist around the turn of the 20th century. So we're going to take this opportunity to shed some light on this very influential, very powerful figure who is, you know, not as well-known as he should be. You know, he was one of the four runners of the modern civil rights movement. You know, he started the National Afro-American League, uh, which sort of um, coincided with the rise of the Niagara Movement. Niagara Movement led into the NAACP, so that's someone we definitely, someone we definitely want to shine a light on for Black History Month. We also have one, also a paid class. This one's very exciting. This is Narratives of Africa, Stereotypes and Realities. Daniel Mangara, who is a literature professor at Montclair State University, will be coming here on Thursday, February 6th at 7 p.m. to discuss African-American literature, sort of then and now, going both dealing with both the then being more the literature that was driven by colonial interest and told from a colonial point of view to some of the more modern authors, particularly those from the African continent that are speaking of the continent and what what is referred to as an African worldview, view. So that's very exciting. So we are welcome Professor Mangara here on the, 20, on the 6th of February. And that should be a very exciting, a very interesting lecture, you know, for those who are into literature and into this particular, this obviously been this groundswell of African authors at, over the past couple of years. You know, they won all kinds of awards, you know, Booker Prizes and, you know, National Book Awards. So it's going to be an exciting discussion. I can't wait.
2: Excellent. I hope you'll also save the date for a couple more things. And like I said, this is just the tip of the iceberg, so definitely go to that link for more. But I'll highlight just a few other ones. We're having our fourth annual African-American read-in. That will be on February 13th, which is a Thursday at 6 p.m. And if you're not familiar with the African-American Read-In, this is an annual program now that anyone can sign up to read a passage from a work by uh, an African-American. So it could be anything that you want to read. Just sign up for one of the slots. It's a really great program, and um, we're really proud to hold it again for the fourth time. We're also doing two book discussions of The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, One on Monday, February 3rd at 6.30. The other one's Friday, February 21st at 2 p.m. And while supplies last, if you sign up, you can get a free copy of the book to keep at the circulation desk. So that's a really great opportunity to discuss a really great book. We also have a concert coming up on uh, Wednesday, February 26th at 6.30 with the James Austin Jr. Trio. They're going to be performing um, some jazz standards as well as selections from James Austin Jr.'s album Songs in the Key of Wonder, which is actually jazz interpretations of Stevie Wonder songs, which I heard a taste of. It sounds really great. And then also Marvin Jefferson, who is a actor who was based in Montclair. Well, it's going to come back, you may have caught his performance, His Chautauqua, Living History of Paul Robeson or Martin Luther King Jr., we had those last year. He's an excellent performer and, and historian, and we're going to, he's going to be doing a Chautauqua of York, who was part of the Lewis and Clark expedition, but is a lesser known person of that of that time, less so than um, Lewis and Clark. So he'll be talking more about his story, and um, we'll be performing as him. That's going to be on Thursday, March 5th at 6 p.m.
1: Very exciting.
2: Yes, I'm very excited. I think we have a lot of a variety, a really good, nice variety of different programs going on. Before we go, I just want to highlight two online resources with your library card. So we're talking about celebrating African-American history. If you want to delve more into African-American history, I would suggest you check out two of our databases, African-American History Online and African-American Experience. And those are all on, both of those are on one webpage with all of our other databases. You, should, you would go to monglerlibrary.org database list. The content in these databases is very rich and informational. It's mostly geared towards, I wouldn't want to say like a middle school, high school audience, but the information, it's it's just informative for everybody. So as much as I love Google and the World Wide Web, I always like to recommend if you're looking for really reliable information and you want to, to learn more about a particular topic, it's great to start with one of our databases. It's really premium, vetted content that um, you really can't go wrong with. These two databases are for Moncler Library cardholders. If you want to use them remotely, they will ask you for a library card. If you want to use them in house, you don't have to have a library card. Just be connected to our Wi-Fi. There's no password, um, or go on to one of our public computers, and you're you can get right in.
1: Yeah, it's such a treat, you know, to have you know genuine resource that provide very vetted research, actual facts. You know, when it's, we're dealing with subject matter this is important, you know, mm-hmm. particularly when dealing with history, you know, marginalized populations. You know, having a resource like that is so invaluable.
2: Yes, I agree. And and you know, if you go and check out either of those databases, I would just Take some time and just go down that list on that page. We have a ton of things, a ton of great resources, both through our own subscriptions and also through the New Jersey State Library. Everything from historical information to business databases, legal databases. We have databases specifically for children like the World Almanac, children and students like the um, World Almanac Online. And lots of great things for you to, to peruse and to just keep learning new things from.
1: I guess all you need for that is a library card, right? You don't need it.
2: Yeah, yeah. In every case, any of our, our premium databases you can use in-house without a library card. And then to use at home, it can be a little tricky. So if it's just a Montclair database, then you'd have to have a Montclair card. If it's a state database, you'd have to have any kind of public library card in the state. So I tried to note on the website which is which but you can always just comment and use any of those wonderful and hope you do all right thanks for listening this has been the maurice and molly podcast (laughs) hour that's only 10 minutes (laughs) 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 and we'll uh we'll catch you next time
3: next time hi this is ken and kirsten and i are here to talk to you about the latest books on our shelves there are a lot of interesting books coming out in february For the adult collection, first of all, we have a few crime fiction gems which may reintroduce you to some favorite writers and characters. Lawrence Block, an old favorite of mine, is releasing The Burglar in Short Order, a collection of short pieces featuring his character Bernie Rodenbar, who has appeared in 11 of Block's novels dating back to 1977. I usually don't like novels where the criminal is the main character, but Bernie is such a delightful guy you can't help but being a little on his side. Two long-out-of-print novels by the late, great Donald E. Westlake are being republished under the title Double Feature. The first, A Travesty, is about a murderous movie critic trying to divert attention from his guilt by teaming up with the police to help solve the crime. The second, entitled Ordo, is about a Hollywood actress coming to terms with the secrets of her past. Westlake was nothing if not entertaining, and I am looking forward to reading this one. The Rock Blaster, a newly translated novel by the late Henning Mankell concerns a working-class man fighting a class struggle while his country and his family prosper around him. Gish Jen has a dystopian novel titled The Resisters out this month. It takes place in a changed America in the not-too-distant future. The daughter of a couple on the downside of society qualifies for the Olympics and challenges the foundations of a deeply divided society. Colin McCann, author of one of my favorite novels of the last decade, Let the World Spin, has a new one called A Puragon. Two men from opposite sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are brought together by shared grief and a desire for peace. There are also some interesting non-fiction titles on their way. The novelist Julian Barnes, fascinated by a portrait by John Singer Sargent, decided to look into the subject of the painting. The result is... The Man in the Red Coat, a biography of Samuel Pazzi, a pioneering surgeon from the Belle Epoque era of Paris. Oscar Wilde, Sarah Bernhardt, and Henry James also weave their way into this tale. When I read novels set in a particular historical period, I usually want to know more about what was going on then. Since one of my favorite books is Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, I'm very interested in a new book by Sinclair McKay called The Fire and the Darkness, The Bombing of Dresden, 1945, For two days in February of that year, British and American bombers leveled the German city of Dresden. Thousands of German soldiers and civilians were killed or injured. Even more were displaced, and the lives of many Allied prisoners, the subjects of Vonnegut's novel, were threatened. The city took many decades to recover. And last for African American History Month, there is A Black Woman's History of the United States by Dana Ramey Berry and Callie Nicole Gross. This uses the stories of enslaved women, freed women, religious leaders, and activists to retell American history from the perspectives of these women who have too often been left out of the conventional historical narrative. Those are the highlights for this month. I hope there's something among these that you can all find to enjoy.
4: Great, thanks, Ken. Uh, Those sound great. I'm going to have to add some to my reading list. This is Kirsten, teen librarian here at Montclair Public Library, and I've also got a few February releases that I'd like to highlight. The first is Red Hood by Alana K. Arnold, this is a feminist modern twist on Little Red Riding Hood. It's part of a growing trend of dark reimaginings of fairy tales. And this one seems to be especially buzzworthy. Um, it establishes a really cohesive mythology for the world it takes place in and also has kind of like a dark murder mystery contemporary vibe. So after fleeing an embarrassing incident at her school's homecoming dance, our main character, Buzu Martel, is attacked by a wolf and manages to overpower and kill it. However, the twist is, on the following day, a classmate is found dead with identical wounds to those inflicted on the wolf things just get more complex and interesting from there. I highly recommend this. Alana K. Arnold has some other titles in our collection that definitely are worth checking out as well. Next up, we've got Ink in the Blood by Kim Smejkol. This is a debut title, and it follows main character Celia, who is an inkling for the fictional religion of Profeta. Using magic, inklings tattoo followers with divine symbols. However, after several years in the religion, she begins to realize it might be built on lies. She takes the opportunity to escape with a traveling theater troupe. However, shortly after her escape, there's another twist, and she discovers that the religion of profeta, while being exploitative and abusive, might actually be based on some very real theology and real deities. And she also begins to suspect that there's a powerful angry force following her. Next up, we have The New David Espinoza by Fred Aceves. This is a realistic fiction, and it tackles a subject not often explored which is male body dysmorphia and eating disorders in the world of bodybuilding. Our main character, David, decides to join a gym to combat bullying over his skinny physique and ends up sucked into the world of steroid abuse. This book presents an unflinching picture of how this eventually takes over his life with great realism from an author who has struggled with the same disorder in his youth. Finally, we've got Deathless Divide by Justina Ireland. This is a follow-up to the awesome Dread Nation, And it takes us right back into the alternate history version of post-Civil War American South that was established in the first book. Our main characters, Jane and Catherine, return to destroy zombies as they travel to California. This title delves even further into race relations and identities in post-Civil War America than the first title, and it expertly integrates real historical fact into the zombie-strewn landscape. I would definitely recommend catching up on the first title in the duology before this one comes out in February if you haven't read it yet. All right, thanks for tuning in.
5: Hello, this is Selwa Shami, Assistant Director of the Montclair Public Library. Today, I'll be speaking with Dion Ford, who is the author of the memoir, Finding Josephine, which is forthcoming. And we'll be speaking today with her about the anthology, which she edited with Jill Strauss, Shared Legacies, Narratives of Race and Reconciliation by Descendants of Enslavers and the Enslaved. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Lit Hub, More, and other publications. She's won awards from the National Association of Black Journalists and the News Women's Club of New York. She's received grants from the Sustainable Arts Foundation and Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and fellowships from McDowell Colony, Yaddo, Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and Hedgebrook. She has an MFA in Creative Writing from New York University and lives in Montclair with her husband and two daughters. As a warning, sexual violence is discussed in the context of slavery. Hi Dion, thanks for coming in today.
6: (laughs) Hi, thanks for having me. You are a Montclair author. When and why did you move to Montclair? So my husband and I moved to Montclair at the end of 2000 and we chose Montclair because we had read that it was a great place for interracial families to live. I'm black, my husband's white. And we just wanted a place that would be welcoming to our family and also I didn't want a place where my kids would be the onlys. And, um, and on top of all that, we knew that Montclair's school system was a good one. And of course, you know, starting a young family, that was something that was important to us too. How old are
5: your daughters now?
6: So now my oldest will be 20 in March and my youngest will be 17 in March.
5: Okay. Mhm. All right. <laughs> what are some of your favorite spots in Montclair? What a
6: hard question to ask. <laughs> but um obviously the one I'm sitting in right now, the library is one of my favorite spots and most used spots. We also have great parks. So I love the parks, Anderson Park, Nishwane Park, and I guess the Eagle Rock Reservation is Montclair adjacent, but <laughs> that's my favorite spot, too. And I love Church Street, just a great place to browse, and there's so many great places to eat. Of course, I love our independent bookstores, and we're lucky to have two. So I've spent a lot of time in Watchung Books. <laughs> also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my spiritual home, which is also on Church Street, um, the Unitarian Universalist Church, which is where our family calls home, our home away from home. Great.
5: What has been your relationship with libraries in your life?
6: So I would say that I started kind of going to the library on my own, you know, outside of my parents' direction when I was in middle school. We moved from South Jersey to um, Morristown, New Jersey, not that far from here. And, you know, the library was actually within walking distance for me. So It became, and it's also, if you've ever been to Morristown's Library, a beautiful old building. And it's kind of just very, yeah, very pretty and inviting. And you could kind of get lost in the little areas there. So it was really nice and a good place to do homework and research. And so the other thing is, you know, the, the egalitarian nature of the library, that it's free. And you can go in there and get what you need to get and leave, like, a little bit smarter um, so it was very empowering for me as a young person to be able to do this really, for me, important thing of, of finding things out for myself, you know, of my own volition, of volition. And so that was kind of like the beginning of my relationship with libraries that have, has, of course, continued as I researched my own book and um, did work for this anthology.
5: You edited Slavery's Descendants, Shared Legacies of Race and Reconciliation with Jill Strauss. How did the book come about?
6: So the way the book came about is that I was a member of Coming to the Table, which is the organization that, you know, makes up the stories in the book, and Jill was as well. Jill had the idea that she wanted to collect members' stories— And in Coming to the Table, it's highly preferred that any kind of project that's taken on under the organization's name is a collaboration between people who are descended from enslavers and people who are descended from enslaved, or just a collaboration between um, African-descended people and European-descended people. So Jill, who's European-American, I would say, asked around to see if there was someone who would be willing (laughs) to um, go and collaborate with her on this, and someone referred her to me, and thus began our work together on this.
5: How is this book different than other books written about the legacy of slavery?
6: I would say that the biggest difference between this and other books that I've read is that it is the perspective of descendants who are both descended from people who were enslaved and people who were enslavers. So it's not one person's perspective. Um, and I think that is the, the view of the Americans who are living here now, you know. So I think that's important that it is um, this broad view
5: many of the contributors to the book are involved with Coming to the Table. What does the organization do and how is it significant
6: to the book? Sure, so yes, that is the case. All of the, all of the contributors are some way involved in Coming mm-hmm. to the Table. And Coming to the Table was created as this way of reckoning with our country's past of slavery and the legacy that it's left. And it was started by a woman who's descended from the Jeffersons. And she reached out to another person who was also descended from a large slaveholding family in Virginia, as well as her black Hemmings Jeffersons, um, mm-hmm. cousins, you would call them. Yeah, so the point was to bring people together who are from this shared legacy to try and reckon with this legacy together and come up with ways to move forward in, in a way that could be healing.
5: The the book uses the theories and practices called Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience, STAR. Mm-hmm.
6: Um, could you explain what that is? Sure, I could try. <laughs> so, so STAR is a research-supported training program, and it started in 2001 in response to the terrorist bombings of September 11th. Um, it brings together theory and practices from neurobiology, conflict, transformation, spirituality, restorative justice, all to address needs of trauma-impacted people and communities. So coming to the table incorporated STARS approach. That was kind of like their basis for their, for their um, how they would approach this restorative practice that they were hoping to do. I should say also that participants and trainers have been adapting the STAR curriculum from things as far as, like, racism, the needs of veterans returning from war, and youth impacted by violence and trauma, a variety of different communities who've been impacted by trauma. STAR is trying to, you know, just adapt their curriculum so a variety of different trauma-impacted communities can use it. Um, and if people want more information about STAR, they can go to Coming to the Table's website. And there's also a, a little book. It's called The Little Book of Trauma Healing that oh. is a very good explanation of what tra- what STAR is. Um, on the website, the the Coming to the Table website, there's also a free download of, like, the... I think it's the first 10 years of STAR and how, the, how it was adapted. So
5: I, I wish I could remember who, but... One of the contributors talked about intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. and how, especially with white Americans, they might not even think about that yeah. because you know some people say, "Well, slavery was so long ago. Why is this still an issue?" In editing the chapters and, and reading them, and even even with your own um, experience with coming to the table. I mean, how have you seen the discussions of intergenerational trauma go?
6: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of the contributors in some way do address this idea, whether it's from like the first contributor, Shannon, talking about knowing his history, but having it invalidated so often because mm-hmm. it's just Unknown, you know, to uh, people that is he's a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Um, now that's more known, but at the time, you know, it was considered like completely false, and that being something a story that was passed down, you know, through the generations to someone like at the end of the book where Phoebe and Betty are talking about. Mm their different knowledge of their histories and how it impacted each of them separately. And then once they came together, working together, how it impacted them, you know, um, in their relationship going forward. And so theirs is a case of it being a great outcome of their just talking about their family's histories and this trauma passed down and them being able to do something really effective with it. I think other times, I think it all, all depends on where the person is in their journey. I think obviously people who are coming to the table are ready to be there. Yeah. So they're receptive to discovering whatever it may be that is in their, um, in their family tree. I think probably with what you see in this book with several of the white um, contributors is their openness to become more aware about their family history, but then when they share it maybe with a family member, there being kind of a shutting down of it, uh, of not wanting to acknowledge that this is, you know, anything to do with them or true. You see that in the second story. It comes up now and again, or even in the third story, Catherine, I think that's the third story, Catherine Sazanov's story, where, you know, she's gifted a Treasure trove of documents, and what she 's interested in is there are enslaved people named here, but her cousin who 's gifting it to her is more interested in getting into I think the daughters of the american revolution right, that 's right so where the mind goes mm-hmm. you know um, catherine 's mind is on whoa how, how are we involved in this um, and her her relative is more involved in the um, you know, the, esteem of you know, the, the, the uh, social thing of the, of the club, you know, and that's denial, right? Like, yeah. or at least that's how I would see it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think in this, in this instance, it's, it's where people are going back to their families or their communities to say, hey, you know, what's going on here in that instance? Yeah. And then I would just say one other thing about uh, one thing that does come up for many of the African descended people is a um, a resistance to want to talk about this history of enslavement in their family because of some sense of shame or just to put it away because it's painful. So I think that would be the other side of the coin of the of the denial.
5: Right. Okay. So you said you were involved, you've been involved with coming to the table. What was what was your experience like personally?
6: So I got involved with coming to the table as I was looking into my own family's history. My great-great-grandparents were a woman named Tempe Burton who was enslaved and a man named, they called him the Colonel Stewart, who... Had enslaved her, and this was information that I knew from my grandfather when I was like twelve. He told me this, but I, but I had tried several times to find this information, and as anyone who's tried to find information about enslaved people can attest, it was difficult, and I would, you know, kind of lose my steam over the years. But, but at this point, I was making progress, and I, in in my progress, came to meet people who were the descendants of the family who had enslaved my great-great-grandmother. Um, and we began to work together, and they were really wonderful and helpful. Um, but it also, there were also some bumps in the road. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to be able to move forward and continue to collaborate with them. But I also, I just needed some support. Like, there was not really anyone I could talk to about this peculiar, you know, um collaboration we were in. And it just as it would happen as we were becoming involved in this um, journey, I found out about coming to the table. And so I reached out to them. Their co-founder Susan Hutchinson got back to me. she was so helpful. and that's how I got to know about the pro this um, organization. I would then go, to their first national gathering I think like a year after that and that's just how I got involved with them and that's how I met many of the people who would collaborate. Catherine Sazanov was my roommate at that first uh. national gathering so so yeah um, it became a really good source for support as I went on this journey of looking into you know painful painful history.
5: I mean, it sounds like an amazing organization.
6: It is an amazing organization, you know, and it's not, you know, it's not like you have to like pay money to be in this organization. I mean, obviously donations are you know welcome because every place needs to run itself. But, you know, you are a member because you say you are a member and you're committed to healing this historic harm. Yeah. And that's really it.
5: Yeah, and I mean, the the fact that there is a place for people to come, you know, to find that kind of support, because in in just reading people's stories and not even having the support of their families, you know, to be able to talk about it and, you know, where do you go? Absolutely. um, It's, and it was, I, I thought it was, it was heartening to me that so many of the African descendants invited people white people the from their family that contacted them to their family reunions yeah. and just incredible yeah. you know and how how some of those folks that you know were on their way there just felt such trepidation but they were just completely welcomed and it just just it was very heartening to hear that 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 kind of healing is happening
6: so you touch on something really important which is that a whole being invited to the family gathering is a big aspect of how this got started mm-hmm. because Will Hairston the other co-founder had been being invited to the black Hairstons family reunion for years and it been going and I think he was like the only person in his white family that would go and so he was also very I think moved by how receptive and opening and welcoming the you know enslaved descendants were mm-hmm. to him right. and I think that had a lot to do with his wanting to also be involved in this organization when he and he and Susan started to discuss beginning this
5: yeah it, so Sharon Leslie Morgan in her chapter uses the phrase "dig into the woodpile" um, as necessary for healing and reconciliation. So, what does she mean by that?
6: So, I'm just gonna read. Okay. First, the chapter, the uh, paragraph that you're um, talking about in her in her chapter called "Digging Up the Woodpile." So she says, it is by digging into the woodpile that we will become empowered to cast off the shackles of the legacy of slavery, the racism it engendered, and the animosity that continues to infect even our best intentions. We must dig into the woodpile to find what is suspicious or wrong and go about the work of setting things right. So digging into the woodpile, it's kind of a, you know, it's a, derog- there's, it's a derogatory uh, phrase people used to say uh, a n-word in the woodpile. Oh. And um, that was kind of like the 19th century version of saying a skeleton in the closet. Mm-hmm. So it would be referring to a child that was the product of a black and white union, um, rape by a slave master right. of an, uh, you know an enslaved woman. And so, um, so she's referring to that, um, you know, that legacy, that trauma, that sexual violence is one of the legacies of slavery. And, uh, her story talks very much about that. You know, she's also descended from enslavers and the enslaved because of that, um, because of that history. So, um... That's what she's referring to. And I would say that's what she's talking about is confronting this truth, this, yeah. this part of our history. And we can see it when we look, you right. know in people's faces yeah. in this country, when we go around to cities that were some of the important ports you know, of slavery. I'm thinking of New Orleans at the moment, but I'm sure Charleston too. Mm-hmm. And so she's saying to look at this squarely. And I, if I can read just one other thing that I think she says that also kind of encapsulates um, this idea that she's talking about. She says, it's counterintuitive to think that being able to sit down with descendants of people who committed such atrocious acts against one's ancestors would be in any way productive. But the reverse proved to be true. By confronting the past in concert with today's living witnesses, I've been able to come to terms with my anger and find a personal solution for how I might contribute to healing the antipathy of race in America.
5: That's very powerful. Yeah.
6: So um, so I see it as re- looking really squarely at, yeah. at, at how this happened, yeah. you know. And it is absolutely a byproduct of enslavement and the sexual violence Mm -hmm. that was enacted upon enslaved women
5: yeah thank you for talking about that I mean that's yeah that I think is one of the, I think the most difficult aspects to look at you know I mean everything is but that in particular so in his chapter Grant Hayter Menzies described spending the night in the preserved slave quarters of Bush Holly House in Greenwich, Connecticut, with you and other members of Coming to the Table. So why did you decide to participate in that, and
6: what was it like? Sure. So Grant, I'm trying to think, I don't think I met him at that first national gathering that I went to, but I did meet the other participants who would, who would uh, go to the slave-dwelling one of whom was Joe McGill, who also contributes to this anthology. And he had a project called the Slave Dwelling Project, where he would go around to the the former slave dwellings around the country and sleep, spend the night in them. And if he could get people to come with him and do that, he would, you know, he always invited people to um, join him. His whole point being to bring attention to these places as national treasures, mm. as sacred spaces that should be preserved and remembered. And I believe that Greenwich, Connecticut, that the Bush-Holly House, was the first place in the North that he spent the, the night. Don't quote me on that, but I think that is true. And I actually had not spent the night, but I had been on a writing retreat not far from a place that had a former uh, slave dwelling on it, uh, Sweet Briar College. And I was kind of fascinated and very happy to see that there was an effort to preserve both the dwelling and also a a burial ground that was on the college um, campus. Um, And because a lot of times these places are just, you know, developed over and forgotten. Mm. So it was really heartening to me that enslaved people were being remembered in this way. I didn't know where my, at that time, I didn't know where my enslaved family was buried. I couldn't honor them in this way. So it became a substitution, you know, for me um, to be able to honor that history. So when Joe invited me to spend the night in the slave dwelling in Bush Holly, I was like, of course, absolutely. You know, I will do that. And I'm really glad that I did and you know these spaces do become a substitution for the places that have been lost in our own family's history. Mm -hmm. A woman who I may or may not be related to who I had gotten to know through our research in the same region uh, when she found out that I was there because I would blog about stuff that I was doing related to my family history research, she emailed me and she asked if I could just touch the wall and say her ancestors' names, because that's how important it was to be in a place where other enslaved people had lived, you know. And also, like, I think, at least for me, I won't put words into her mouth, but this sanctuary where it is their own space, you know, people who are enslaved, their own space to be in that place that is not somebody else's you know that is where they can have their own just autonomy for a few hours of the day ironically at the bush holly house that space is not a separate space it's within it was within the home that you know the big house so um i think this was kind of typical in northern homes that the attic or like the cellar would be where the enslaved people slept so we were in the attic but um but still you know it it, it was their space um and there's some level of autonomy at least mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah.
5: wow <laughs> and you know in the chapter he, he was saying that he, you know he he felt like he saw a ghost you know and and just kind of communed with that presence, and it
6: was very powerful. It was a powerful, <laughs> a powerful experience, I think, for all of us yeah. to be there.
5: Yeah. What are some of the salient themes in approaching difficult conversations about race that you've learned um, from these stories and your own experience?
6: I think. I mean. So coming to the table obviously has like their four approaches, which I won't say that you can read the book (laughs) to to see that. But I think just from my own experience and reading people's stories, I think so much of it is about being vulnerable, being willing to be vulnerable and honest about your truth. And then when it's time for someone else to tell their truth, listening to it Mm. and not projecting any of what your story is onto theirs. Because no matter how much history you've read and what you know about your own story, their story could be very different. I, I, and I think that's where this willingness to come to the table and so important is just remembering, you know, that people have very different experiences and being willing to just listen. <laughs> um, I think those are the most important things, being willing to be vulnerable and then being willing to listen, you know. Um, I Actually, let me say one more thing, because now as we start to talk about Um, in a more serious way the concept of of reparations. I think one of the things that's interested me is that so many people come to the table with their preconceived idea of what reparations is Mm -hmm. without actually having asked the people who would be the recipients what they want. And I feeling that's really short-sighted and really kind of cuts the legs, you know, from the whole exercise. Um so, you know, and this I think happens in justice too, you know, in the courts, like do people actually turn to the person who's been victimized and say, what would be a suitable act of restoration for you? How would how can you feel whole, you know? I think that's often forgotten. So, I would say also thinking about that, you know, like going to if you really want to make a, a repair going to the person who's been harmed and saying first of all is it you know are you even interested mm-hmm. and second of all what would that look like for you because i think one of the things that i i have come to see is that it is so different for people you know so for some people and this comes up as a big theme it's just knowing it's just knowing who their ancestors were and maybe, if possible, what happened to them. I think it's really important to, um, again, that goes back to listening, right? Like to, to not lead <laughs> with your own ideas, but lead with open openness to um, the many ideas of, of people who've been harmed.
5: Yeah, thank you, that's it's very important. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so what are, what are you working on now?
6: So I am working on the thing that got me interested in coming to the table in the first place, which is my own, a memoir of my own family's history. It's called Finding Josephine. And it's a story of tracing my great-great-grandparents, well, I should say my great-grandmother, Josephine, and her parents, Tempe um, and the Colonel, uh, through the lens of being in a mixed-race family myself, as Mm -hmm. I said at the beginning, you know, my husband's white, our daughter's are two biracial girls and their lives are reflected in our history yeah
5: all right thank you so much for coming in dion we really appreciate it thank you so much for having uh, me when do you know when the book's going to be published that i don't know yet
6: okay finish writing (laughs) we'll we'll look out for it (laughs) thank you okay thank thank you you. so much
0: we hope you've enjoyed this episode of check us out the montclair public library podcast To learn more about the things we've talked about and all of our resources, services, and programs, please visit us at montclairlibrary.org. Thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions, please feel free to let us know. We'd love to hear from you.